Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SD Podcast Channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We could be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents the most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard, episode 32. I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And I'm Nick Sarasso. And Nick, a little bit of reverse roles here as I'm taking the reins for the first time here in episode 32. Feels good to be running the show again a little bit, but... uh. How are you feeling after we've uh, been consistently putting out some episodes? You know, I, I like the consistency we're bringing to the table. Uh, we got a lot to talk about because of everything that went on in week 11. And I think we, we still got some MLB conversations that are going to be a lot of fun. Free agents getting closer. Uh, with you running the show tonight, it, it kind of reminds uh, me feel of the old shows of the Talking Beard uh, when we were with WSIA 88.9 FM. A little throw in there, but of how I was always a guest on your show, so it's it's nice to be seeing this again. Yeah, not bad for a little bit of a throwback. And like you said, we're in that weird time where you know baseball. Yes, baseball is over, but every so often you hear a transaction or you'll hear a free agent signing, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about baseball all over again. And it was an interesting week in general because you know I was looking at the NFL games, and there wasn't a lot of you know high anticipated matchups you know we had the rams and chiefs which we'll get into in a little bit um but a lot of the matchups on paper they looked like duds it ended up being a pretty exciting week in the nfl and a pretty newsworthy week as we'll jump right into it the first thing we're going to talk about today is the saints the new orleans saints destroying the philadelphia eagles nick they just plastered the defending super bowl champions there's really no easy way to put it there's no nice way of putting it for the philadelphia eagles the eagles looked terrible in that game the Saints flat out made them look like they didn't belong in the same league with them. So with the Saints' fantastic performance, Nick, right off the bat, I want to know, are the Saints the best team in the National Football League? Yeah. You look at the Saints, completely annihilated. The Philadelphia Eagles, the team that won the Super Bowl last season, the biggest blowout against the Super Bowl defending team in the history of the NFL, 48-7. to They've put up three straight games of 40 points. They have, I think, six games this season of 40 points, and they're 5-1 and one in those games. But they are not the best team in the NFL. They have beaten some of the best teams in the NFL this season. They have wins over the Rams. They have wins over the Vikings. The Vikings have been a little bit more of a down team this season. I'm sure we'll get when we talked about the Bears and Vikings matchup, but... No, they're not the best team in the NFL. I think the best team in the NFL, we just saw play last night in Monday Night Football. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. But 
everything shows how good the Saints are. I think they're gotta be considered the second best team. I'm just not 100% sold on them completely. But overall, this is not a team you want to face if you got to face them in New Orleans. I think every single time you're playing in New Orleans, they have the edge in that factor. Uh, but there are always those question marks on the road. But this offense is incredible this season. This defense has played phenomenal lately. They're a 13.5-point favorite over the Falcons. And I know the Falcons haven't played that well this season. But that's still a ridiculous spread for one of the division rival game. And two, an offense like Atlanta to have to be that much of an underdog, it just tells you how good the Saints have been this season. But I am not crowning them the best team in the NFL. I think they're the second best right now. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Nick. Um, you know, let's talk about the Eagles for a little bit. They're hurt. They're banged up. No real running game. Even, even though Carson Wentz, I'm not blaming him, but for some reason for me when I watch Carson Wentz play, he still doesn't look too comfortable, maybe from being back yet from that injury. And we're going to talk about the Eagles in a little bit too later on in the show. But and I don't want to take anything away from the Saints, but you know you weren't playing a top team in the NFL this past Sunday, right? We talk about how they're defending champs. Well, all that goes out the window by now. You're in Week 11 and you're playing like this. If you're the Eagles, they're below 500. So give credit to the Saints. They took care of business, right? They play extremely well at home. I will say this is a really complete team. I will say that they're probably the second best team. Like you said, I think the first best team in the league right now is the Rams. And I know people are going to say, well, the Saints have a win over the Rams. So how does that not make them the best? That game was really close. I mean, if the Saints would have gone in and blown out the Los Angeles Rams, then I can feel more comfortable saying that the Saints are up there. But, you know, the Saints are just a really talented team. You can't take anything away from them. They have a great running game with not just Kamara, but with Ingram, too. You know, me and you both know that the NFL is going more towards that two running back league where you have to have not just one great running back, but really two good running backs, decent running backs in order to survive in this league now, which is great for fantasy owners, right? More running backs get the more reps. But, you know, and then it's not just a running game, though. When you think this team is very one-dimensional, they have a phenomenal quarterback like Drew Brees. And Drew Brees is one of those QBs who he really makes anybody look good, kind of like the Tom Brady effect. But you give this guy talented wide receivers like Michael Thomas, I mean— that's even better for this team. So I definitely think the Saints are right up there. I think they're one of the best in the NFL. If they're not one, they're one A. Um, again, you know, they, you know, they just they beat the Rams, but they just beat the Rams. And I think a lot of ways the Rams made a lot of mistakes in their matchup when they went one on one. So in a lot of ways, you can argue that the Rams beat themselves. But take nothing away from the Saints. Like you said, they're doing it. They're hand, they're taking care of business. They're even though that division technically. Atlanta and Carolina still have a shot for the wild card. The division is over. The division is clearly going to go to the New Orleans Saints. I have no idea. There's no doubts in my mind that the Saints are going to wrap up probably the second seed. You know, if the Rams happen to lose a couple of games here and there, which might be possible as we grind down the rest of the season, maybe the Saints end up with the first seed. But I do know the Saints will be one of the top two teams and not just the NFC, but in the NFL at all. Um, so I totally agree with you. They're not the best in the NFL um, until they beat the Rams more decisively i can call them the best in the nfl but for right now they're not uh speaking of drew Brees, though he's having a phenomenal season and it feels like every year we talk about this how phenomenal drew Brees is he's breaking records left and right i still feel like sometimes he gets he's a little bit underrated for some reason but this is a guy who makes his receivers look really good he has talented receivers to work with 
you know, he barely gets sacked. When he does, it doesn't seem to phase him. He's a pro's pro. Drew Brees is having a phenomenal year. Is he making his case for MVP, Nick, or do you have someone else in mind over Drew Brees? Uh, Drew Brees, just under 3,000 passing yards, 25 touchdowns. He, here's the one stat that stands out to me. 25 touchdowns, one interception this season. He's even got three rushing touchdowns this year. And you talked about the team. They're 9-1. and one. They've won nine straight games. Their offense puts up everything this year. I think six or seven games of 40 points. No. Uh, the one thing that I will say is, it is a quarterback. And it's going to be a quarterback no matter what for MVP when it comes to the NFL. It will only be quarterbacks. It will not be Todd Gurley no matter the season he's having. It will not be Aaron Donald one of the best defensive players, if not the best defensive player in the NFL. But the MVP is pretty much already set. It's Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you look at what he did Monday night, but just in general this season, he has 37 passing touchdowns. He has the most passing yards. He's in just his really his first season as an NFL quarterback. He's extremely young. And he's even got 180-something rushing yards. It's it's a clear favorite for MVP as Patrick Mahomes to lose, especially when he's up 10 touchdowns on Drew Brees, who probably has the second best chance of winning the MVP. Because, again, I don't count running bats to win MVP. They're just they're never going to win that award. They'll win the Offensive Player of the Year, but they'll never win the MVP. Uh, but Drew Brees has certainly made a case for it. The only way that he has a shot of winning it, though, is if I think Mahomes went down for the season, and then Drew Brees has got a couple extra games on Mahomes. But as far as this uh, MVP race, it's Mahomes to lose, and there's not much he has to do to win it at this point. Yeah, you know, in, in a way, I kind of feel bad for Drew Brees. I mean, here we are again. Drew Brees having a fantastic season. I feel like this has happened before. Um, and... You know, you have him in the conversation that he's an MVP candidate, but then just someone else is just having that much of a better year, right? I know you're saying that it's kind of decided already, but to me, it's actually pretty close than, than people think it is. I think people are going to vote for Drew Brees, too, for the MVP. I think people are going to consider him, too. I also believe that Mahomes is the favorite, but I do, th- I do think it's a lot closer than what you're making it seem. Um, but again, you know, Drew Brees, fantastic quarterback. Take nothing away from him. He's having another great season, and he's been doing this every single year. But like you said, when I look at most valuable player, I look at that word valuable. And I'm not saying Drew Brees is not valuable to the New Orleans Saints, but all the things I just listed before. He has talented wide receivers. He has a great run game behind him. You know, Patrick Mahomes has Tyreek Hill, but really Patrick Mahomes is making his receivers look really good. I don't think Tyreek Hill has proven to me enough yet that he could be a dynamic wide receiver in this league. I think he's really benefiting from having a really good quarterback in Patrick Mahomes. You know, Kareem Hunt is also there, and yes, he has a good run game. But to me, where would the Chiefs be without Patrick Mahomes? I mean, you know, there was a reason why they traded up and drafted this kid. There was a reason why they made him hold the clipboard for a full season last year and let him learn from Alex Smith and and whatnot and really just let him take a year to learn the system and to learn the NFL. And he's really showing you everything that he's learned this year. Um, 
And so I think Patrick Mahomes has just been a little bit more valuable to the Kansas City Chiefs, especially with the year that they had last year that was so bad. Um, I do think Todd Gurley should receive more consideration because he's doing a fantastic job, and I don't know where the Rams would be without his contribution to the run game because, like we were saying before, it's a two-running-back league. But you know who doesn't use like two running backs, basically? It's the Rams. They're using Todd Gurley for almost every single down out there, and he's going out there running his legs, you know, running wild every single game that they have. He's, you know, has a boatload of the carries. So I think Todd Gurley definitely should be, you know, in the mix as well, too. Um, so again, take nothing away from Drew Brees, and he's having another fantastic season. But I feel like, again, there's just that one other person that's just having a little bit of a better year than him, and that's Patrick Mahomes this year, as you said, too. So since 2007, only one player that's not a QB position, has won the MVP. And that was in 2012. Adrian Peterson won it, and he almost broke the rushing yard record uh, that season. Other than that, it's been quarterbacks every single year, whether they're named Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, Cam Newton, Matt Ryan. But a name that's not on this list is Drew Brees. What surprises me the most is... All these different years where he's thrown 5,000 yards, so many touchdowns, so so many incredible seasons. He's never taken home the MVP award. I don't see it happening this season either. Well, I mean, it's a little bit harder to win the MVP in the NFL, too. You know, I'm just thinking about it right now. In baseball, there's two separate leagues, so we have two MVPs, right? But when you're talking about the NFL— we have all 32 teams in the mix. You're talking about, let's say, if the quarterback is the favorite, you have 32 quarterbacks. Now, obviously, Drew Brees is one of the top five, but those other guys you mentioned, you know, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, when they were on, they were on too as well. So Drew Brees has really just been like a tough luck loser, by the, you know, basically, because he's either up against somebody phenomenal or, like we said before, he's just missing out behind somebody good. And this year, it's no different than Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, it's almost like the Colorado Rockies effect. You know, yeah. we always um, judge New Orleans on offense. And it's like, oh, he put up 40. Well, that's just expected. It's New Orleans. They're just known for offense playing so well at home. It's the same way we view the Rockies. Oh, Nolan Arenado and Charlie Blackman, they played phenomenal this season. Well, you know, half their games are in you know, Coors Field. They're going to put up phenomenal numbers. Uh, we, we do downplay it. A little bit, I think that's a, uh, unfair to Drew Brees, especially, especially what he means to the city of New Orleans, and uh, with everything that has gone on from the time he's gotten there to now, he has changed that aspect. He is the most important person in that city, in that franchise, uh, in the history of the New Orleans Saints. But overall. It's just another year where he'll be either taking home a second place or even further back in an MVP because this is Mahomes' entire uh, way to run with it. And the last thing on the Saints before we move on to the next topic, you know, Saints are playing really well. As we mentioned, They're if they're not the best team in the NFL, they're the second-best team, definitely the second-best team in the NFC East. And we have the LA Rams. Is it possible that the NFC title match comes down to the Rams and the Saints? And if so... Who would you have right now? Because we know they played that really close game last time out. The Saints took it away. You know, the Saints took that game in a game of inches. It was very close. What happens if an impossible rematch is for the NFC title? That's going to be great. Uh, I think it's, this is a year that fans should be really excited for the way 
uh, players have been playing uh, offensively, the the scores that have been going on. Uh, when they played earlier, New Orleans won 45-35 in New Orleans. Overall, I'm giving it to the Rams. Yes, they won't have Cooper Cup, but one player that I think everyone's forgetting about is Aqib Tlaib. He did not play against Kansas City. He has not played against New Orleans. He has missed serious time, but he will be back before the end of the season, and he's the guy that will be covering Michael Thomas. He's the guy that will be covering a Tariq Kill. He's the guy that every single week, the Rams are getting lit up by this number one wide receiver. They're going to have their number one cornerback for those type of matchups. And I don't expect them to shut down number one wide receivers of that caliber. But they're not going to go off the way they did. You're not going to see 70-yard touchdowns the way that they were putting up against the Rams of late. That, to me, is one of the key difference points on how much this defense is going to be in effect for that game against New Orleans or against Kansas City or against any top offensive team in the league, this defense is only going to improve, and we already know how great the offense is for the Los Angeles Rams. I can, I, I have the Rams going very far, and overall, I think they're the best team in the NFL, but a lot of that has to do with what we also saw on Monday night. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. I think... It's funny how this, you know, every year I feel like there's a couple teams that could make that run through the playoffs. In the NFC, I don't feel like there's a lot of teams that can make a serious run. I think it's either going to be the Saints or it's going to be the Rams representing them in the Super Bowl. Um, I think it's just a matter of time until it's these two teams, the last two teams standing. Um, And really what it comes down to is defense. When both teams have such an explosive offense, who has the better defense and and can contain them better? Not shut them down better but just contain them for a bit to let their offense do their thing. And it's like you said, Tlaib wasn't playing the last time out. Um, and just in general, the Rams have a better defense than the Saints. You know, the Saints were in the same boat last year too when they faced the Vikings in the playoffs. Their defense didn't show up, and their defense made a huge mistake last year that led to a game-winning touchdown, a terrible tackle choice. And, you know, once again, de- and so for the Saints, the defense does let them down at times. So it'll be very interesting to see that if, if there is a rematch, you know, which defense can contain the other offense a little bit better. That way their team can come out on top. Speaking of Monday night and speaking of the Rams, the Chiefs and Rams game on our last podcast, we did say that it could have been a potential Super Bowl matchup. Well, Nick, it lived up to the hype. The Rams beat the Chiefs by a final score of 54 to 51. I mean, again, I'll repeat that 54 to 51. I not entirely sure, but I think I saw something where it was saying it was the first game ever that both teams put up 50 points in a game in NFL history. Not sure if that's fully correct, um, but I did see that out there floating around on the internet somewhere. What were your biggest takeaways from this potential Super Bowl matchup? And based on last night, would you sign up to see it again? <laughs> well, obviously, based on last night, yes. I think everybody would sign up to see that again. That is the best regular season game you're going to see all season long. Without a question, I can say that. We we thought the Rams-Saints game was incredible. That was nothing compared to what we saw last night. It lived up to all of its hype. First off, going into that game, 
it was a 63-point over-under Vegas team that went the highest all time. And what did it do? It blew out that over-under. It got into the hundreds. It's the first time ever both teams have scored over 50 points. It's the first time ever a team has put up 50 points and lost. My biggest takeaway of the night? This was a phenomenal game. Patrick Mahomes played incredible sits, touchdown, over 470 yards passing. He's a candidate for dude of the week, I can tell you that. But this just showed how great the Rams are. I mean, they put up 54 points. They forced multiple turnovers on Patrick Mahomes. Multiple turnovers late in the game on Patrick Mahomes. Returned them for touchdowns at times. The offense was incredible all game for the Rams, for the Chiefs, nonstop. But if you had to tell me the Rams are going to put up 54 points, Todd Gurley's going to touch the ball 12 times for just 55 yards. The guy that has 17 total touchdowns, 13 of them rushing, is not going to score a single touchdown. Oh, and he's not even going to get over 100 total yards of the game because he only had 34 receiving and three receptions. Their best player, that MVP candidate, touched it 15 times for 94 total yards, and this team put up 54 points in that game. That's how much this Rams offense speaks out to me. That their running back, their real MVP of the team, wasn't really in that game. And they killed it. They're, one of their top wide receivers is out for the season. And they killed it with 54 points. Yeah, their defense gave up a lot of points. But we expected a lot of points in that game. Tell Vegas that they expected a ton of points in that game. I mean, my biggest takeaway is, can we get that every week? I mean, we went from a Monday Night Football the week prior of Giants versus the 49ers, two of the worst combined winning percentages in the history of Monday Night Football, to the like the second highest winning percentage when two teams 9-1 and one faced, faced off against each other. We don't see that often. It lived up to its hype and more. You you think back of those years where it's like Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady, and you love those matchups because you get them once a year. Peyton Manning versus Big Ben, and they're they're great games. They're interesting games. They're close games all game long, but they're nothing like that. They're nothing where it's touchdowns every thirty three minutes. I mean, every fan should love that game. Every fan should want that type of game for the Super Bowl because of how entertaining that game was in on Monday Night Football. And if these two teams do face off in the Super Bowl, oh, the hype that everyone's going to have before that game is just going to be simply incredible. Yeah, Nick. I mean, as you said, it was a weird, it was a weird game, but in a very, very good way. Like you said, no Cooper Cup. Todd Gurley, technically did not have a good game, right, by Todd Gurley's standards, under 100 yards. I don't consider that a good day for Todd Gurley. So Todd Gurley doesn't have a good game. Cooper Cup is out for the year, and the Rams still score 54 points. On the opposite side, you have the Chiefs. The Rams, one of the best defenses in the NFL, but the Chiefs are still able to put up 51 points. That's scary. Patrick Mahomes has a great game, but also... This is probably one of the worst games he's had with the touchdowns being with the interceptions being returned for touchdowns. 
and that just goes to show you how good this Rams defense is that they're making somebody like Patrick Mahomes look bad, even though Mahomes still had a great game. This is still one of the you know worst we've seen him all season long. This is just a fantastic game, and honestly, it's sad that someone had to lose. You know, like you didn't, at the end of this game, you were saying to yourself, "Does somebody really have to get their second loss of the season?" This game had it all. It had two young QBs going at it, two that are supposed to be top defenses in the league getting smoked by offense. If you're Roger Goodell, there's dollar signs flying all around your head right now. Your eyes are just picturing mountains of cash that will be around you if this is a Super Bowl matchup. So if you're Roger Goodell, you're hoping this is a Super Bowl matchup. If you're an NFL fan, you're hoping this is a rematch as well too because last night was a great game. And there's really no other way to put it besides saying it was a great game. It was phenomenal. If you missed it, shame on you. Because we we said it on our last episode. This is going to be a great game. It's going to be fun. But I don't think, you know, even we, or like you said, or Vegas knew that it was going to get this crazy or this wild. This was a classic shootout. It reminded me of the old NFL when scores would run up very high. I mean, this is like a game of Madden right here, right? Again, like you said, no team has ever lost when throwing up 50 points. And yet it happened last night. This is an insane game from beginning to end. And, you know, I'm not sold on the Chiefs like you are. You know, I think Andy Reid, in general, still has to prove to me that he can get over that playoff hump and get to the Super Bowl. But if the Chiefs do make it, I really hope the Rams are on the other side. Or maybe even the Saints, because the Saints can probably hang up these amount of points too. But... If I can get a rematch of last night's matchup, I'll sign up for a heartbeat. Last but not least, before I'm sorry, Nick, you want to throw something in? No, I completely agree with you at all points. Um, last thing we want to say, you touched upon it briefly. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning, Big Ben. When these two guys faced each other once a year, it was phenomenal. And all those guys are in the AFC. This was an, inter, uh, an interleague matchup, so to speak with the Chiefs being on AFC and the Rams being on the NFC. So we may not get this game once a year, right? We may get this game once every two years, depending on how the schedule plays out. Two of the youngest QBs in the game, Patrick Mahomes, Jared Goff, you know, two very talented quarterbacks leading their respective teams. If you had to pick one quarterback to build your team around, we're drafting today, Nick, and you have to pick a QB to lead your team, are you picking Patrick Mahomes or are you picking... Jared Goff. Now, before you pick, I don't want to make you nervous. There technically is no wrong answer because they're both fantastic. <laughs> but if you had to choose one, is it Goff or is it Mahomes? All right. So the thing with Jared Goff is uh, we were looking at him, and, and everyone agreed that and Goff is a perfect example. Sit for a year. Hold a clipboard. Get better. Both of the men did that. But when Jared didn't need to hold a clipboard anymore. We were really questioning how good could he be? Is he going to be there? Is he the next step? Obviously, with all the offensive pieces around him, and the same with Mahomes, they're both phenomenal. They're both having amazing seasons. But really, I think that the turning point for Jared Dolph was Sean McVay. And it's the right coach, the right offensive plan, and the right system. And Jared Goff fits exactly that for Sean McVay. And I think most quarterbacks could fit that for Sean McVay. 
Mahomes is on a different element. Mahomes can throw the ball the furthest among every single quarterback. What we've seen, some of the passes that he's done on the run, it left-handed at times. Just uh, I view Mahomes' raw talent much more impressive than Jared Goff's. And if I had to take a quarterback, I'm taking Mahomes for the fact that, like, as much as I love the Chiefs' offense and as much as I love the Rams' offense, and each one of them have a ton of weapons around them, Mahomes overall has, I think, more talent than Dolph, and he doesn't have that offensive quarter uh, coach, and, and that that is Sean McVay. I respect Andy Reid a lot, and I think he's a phenomenal coach, and one day we'll most likely be a Hall of Famer as a head coach, but at the end of the day, I'm going to take Mahomes every single time the way he has played. Totally agree. Again, we have the same answer on this one, too. I'm rolling with Patrick Mahomes as well, too. Again, can't take anything away from Jared Goff, and there really is no wrong answer to this, because I think Jared Goff is a phenomenal quarterback. I think he bounced back very nicely from the controversy that began with his career, right? Because, you know, he didn't put up great numbers when he was coached by Jeff Fisher. And we looked at it, and Sean McVay, you know, runs through the door, and all of a sudden Jared Goff is his phenomenal quarterback. And it's it's not fully because of Sean McVay. I think Goff felt more comfortable to be himself and to let it fly under his new head coach. And we all know QBs offensively don't do that great when they're coached by Jeff Fisher. But as you said, Patrick Mahomes is that kid that was basically made in a lab. He's so strong. He's so big. He, you know, again, he throws the ball for 80 yards or whatever. You know, he's that LeBron James type of guy where you look at him and you're like, this kid is a freakish athlete. You know, you would think that he was made in a lab with the way that he was put together. Um, and I just think this kid is, is very smart. You know, a lot of people, especially for Patrick Mahomes, he's under more scrutiny, in my opinion, because... He sat out an entire year, right? The Chiefs drafted him, told him to hold the clipboard and learn. Usually when you do that, there's more expectation for you to be good because you spent the whole year studying film. You studied the NFL. You studied the league. You studied your offense, right? So when you spend a year on the bench, when next year comes around, you better be ready to roll. And what has Patrick Mahomes done since? Since week one, he's taken off and he's been fantastic and he's made this his team it was a seamless transition i don't think the chiefs could have hoped that it could have gone any better but for the chiefs it's been fantastic and like you said i think you know both qbs are very good but patrick mahomes is just a little bit better and again no wrong answer on who to choose on that one but i think most people would say they would choose patrick mahomes over jared goff if they were starting a franchise today moving on now to some other teams in the nfc uh, the Chicago Bears made an impact on Sunday by beating the Vikings. They are now in sole possession of first place. Again, a little bit of a shocking win over Minnesota. My question is here, Nick, and on the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago, I told you the Bears were my surprising team. Was beating the Vikings on Sunday a statement by Chicago declaring that they are for real and be taken seriously? If that's not a statement... I don't know what possibly is. You host the Vikings, 
who everyone expected to run away with this division when it opened up. And you beat him. Not only did you beat him, you led 14 nothing at the half. Going into the fourth quarter, it was 14-3. to I mean, this was overall just a pure dominant showing by the Bears. The Vikings got their first touchdown with less than five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. The Bears completely dominated this game. Mitchell Trubisky looked great for the entire game. This Bears defense looks like the best defense in the entire NFL. There's nothing to say wrong about this team. I really like Jordan Howard. I don't think they use Jordan Howard enough for the Bears. But they love using Tariq Cohen. Tariq Cohen plays well for them at the end of the day. He, he, he's a guy that made some big plays at times. A, a high risk, high reward. But overall, there, there's nothing to say wrong about the Bears. They've got a phenomenal defense. It might be the best at, in the NFL this season. Mitchell Trubisky has played far higher than I ever expected him to. The offense looks good. Wide receivers, Anthony Miller, the young guy, he's putting up some good stores here and there. He's becoming more of a red zone target than an overall target throughout the game. That's the type of guy you need sometimes, that just red zone threat. Allen Robinson's playing really well. He's not the Allen Robinson that we knew when he was with the Jaguars. I think a little bit of age and injuries have affected him at times this season. But overall, he's been that star wide receiver for them. As uh, as with Taylor Gabriel, it's hard to fault anything except to say this team is for real. They would to be the team that's going to win this division. They're seven and three. The next closest team is five, four, and one, and that's the Vikings. And they just, you know, ran out that game, completely dominating the Vikings. They sent the message to the entire NFL. And this is one of those games where you can send a message when it's Sunday night football. Everyone's paying attention to Monday night football. Everyone's watching Sunday night football. You want to send a message, you completely dominate your division rival who made it to the NFC Championship game a year prior. So that's my, my take from it right then and there. I don't know how good they can do matching up on high-power offenses like the Rams and Saints, but as far as going week-to-week matchups, you got to like the Bears every single time they go out there. That defense is going to keep them in the game. That defense can put up points. That defense can set up great field position for the Bears offense. Mitchell Trubisky was really great at times. Didn't really know what to expect with him this season, but he has... You know, surpassed all my expectations. The Vikings were 60 minutes away from the Super Bowl last year, right? They lose to the Eagles in the NFC Championship game. They come out, they sign Kirk Cousins. This was supposed to be a straight shot for the Vikings. They were supposed to battle the Packers in two important games this year between Kirk Cousins and Aaron Rodgers, and the winner of those were obviously going to come out on top. And they were supposed to make the playoffs, and they were supposed to make another Super Bowl run for Minnesota. The Bears had other ideas. They traded for Khalil Mack. Their defense has improved. Mitchell Trubisky has been fantastic this year. And really, yes, this was a statement. And 
honestly, I'm still very surprised by the Bears. I think even if you ask me in Week 16, if they're still in first place, you know, who's your most surprising team? It's still the Bears because I didn't expect them to be here. I didn't expect them to be this good, even with Khalil Mack, but they are. And like you said, Sunday Night Football, when it's prime time and you're the only game on TV at that point, right, at 8 o'clock at night, a lot of people would choke. A lot of people would not show up. A lot of people would not play to the best of their ability. The Bears didn't do that. The Bears showed up. They weren't scared of Kirk Cousins. They weren't scared of the Vikings. They weren't scared of Sunday Night Football. And they made their statement victory. And to me, I am all in on the Bears. I think they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to win this division. Like you said, I don't know if they're going to get past the Rams. I don't know if they're going to get past the Saints. But I can totally see them winning on Wild Card Sunday or Wild Card Saturday in the first round of the playoffs. And I think the best part about all this is it's not Khalil Mack. It's not the Bears finally being good again. It's Mitchell Trubisky. I mean, this was a kid who they traded up, right, to get him, to draft him. A lot of controversy around that trade-up. They thought it was dumb just to move up one spot. He holds the clipboard for half a season. A lot of people thought that they put him to start way too early. I believe you were one of the people that said that he was, you know, it was way too early to start him. You wanted him to hold the clipboard a whole year, just like Mahomes did. And this year, a lot of question marks surrounding Trubisky. He comes back and he does phenomenally well. He's still doing good. I think he still has a lot of room to grow. He still has a lot of room to improve. But Trubisky is finally looking like an NFL quarterback. And to me, that's the best part of this whole Bears scenario. Again, the Chicago Bears are a story franchise, and they're one of those teams where it just hurts to watch them, frankly, not be good all of last year and the years prior, right? You never want to see the Bears finish in last place. They're such a storied franchise. But to finally see them back on their grind, back in first place, on top of the division, with a good young quarterback, it gives you hope, especially if you're a Chicago fan, that this isn't just a fluke, that this can be something of stability for the next couple of years. Um, so yeah. And if I can piggyback off of what you were saying, uh, Sunday night football, you know, some teams do cave under the pressure. Think back to week one when they played the Packers and yes, Aaron Rodgers got injured in that game, but the bears played Sunday night football against the green Bay Packers week one in the season. And the bears were winning that game the entire way. They would lose that game 24-3 to at the very end, but overall, that was an entire dominant showing by the Bears for the first three quarters. Then Aaron Rodgers gets, comes back, puts up like three touchdowns late in the game for the Packers to beat the Bears. And you think back to week one, this is a whole different team than what we saw earlier in the season. And the big stat for me when I was watching the game was they showed a, a number of the age as far as the defensive players on the Bears. Not a single player over 30 has start, uh, thirty or older has started at a defensive position for the Bears this season. That's how young this core is defensively, and they've been this great. So I think that just shows how impressive this Bears defense is. Yep, and like you said, a good young age to keep building off of that for years to come as well, too. So last year's draft class was very quarterback-heavy, right? We talked about Sam Darnold. 
talked about Josh Rosen. Baker Mayfield went number one overall. The guy that often got forgotten about was Lamar Jackson. In fact, he was so forgotten about that he was, I believe, the last pick in the first round of the draft. Lamar Jackson has finally taken his starting job from the Baltimore Ravens as the injury to Joe Flacco kind of forced the Ravens to go with Lamar Jackson here. He had a fantastic game. The Ravens won. This is a recipe for disaster, if you ask me, for Joe Flacco, watching your replacement do good. Nick, two questions. Is Lamar Jackson the future of the Ravens? Did they do a great job by drafting the kid that, for some reason, some bizarre reason, honestly, so many people didn't want to touch? And two, should Lamar Jackson be starting over Joe Flacco next season? So, is he the future of the Ravens? I certainly hope so. Uh, Joe Flacco reminds me of a slightly better version uh, than current Eli Manning, and so that's, that's not saying much. It's not saying much, and <laughs> I, I really like Joe Flacco. There was a time where I, I was a huge Joe Flacco supporter, but he has not shown it these past couple of years. Uh, Lamar Jackson comes into the game, and he doesn't, you know, f- put up flashy numbers. Thirteen of nineteen uh, for the entire game, one hundred and fifty total yards. One interception, and in an interception, he was he, you know, was really trying to do too much on a single play, more of a rookie mistake type of thing. Hit as he threw the ball, uh, but I'm not gonna fault that. Twenty-seven times he rushed the ball, 117 rushing yards. I mean, that stuff stands out. He is a pure threat when he rushes the ball. We saw him every time he came into the game as a one-play option uh, when Joe Flacco was still on the field at times. He is very impressive. He got he was traded for in the first round to move up, well, to get a second pick in the first round for Baltimore. He certainly should be the future. There are question marks because of the fact that they'll have a new general manager. You don't know what goes on with John Harbaugh. Uh, for this season. So there, there is a little bit of will he start next season over the Flacco? I don't really know. Should he, though? Definitely. But if Flacco does come back before the end of this year, or if he is ready for Week 12, I don't think he will be, then Flacco should be starting. Because I, I am a huge uh, fan of, you know, give the guy a clipboard. Don't put him out there immediately. Don't try and have him do so much. He has a better chance learning from the sidelines than going out on the field and trying to do too much to begin the season. But Lamar Jackson, I really viewed him as NFL ready Come when he was getting drafted, and he certainly showed that picking up his first win as a starting quarterback. So it looks like we're going to disagree for the first time. Here on the show. That's good. In this, in this segment, at least. But not entirely. Because I agree with you on some things. So I just want to set the record straight. You know, I think me and you are in a minority here. Where we don't we don't have a problem with Joe Flacco, right? I feel like everybody hates Joe Flacco for some, for some bizarre reason. I think he's a good quarterback. You can still win with Joe Flacco. Like, I totally agree with you. He's kind of, he's a slightly better Eli Manning, right? He's this guy who, and, and you're probably going to disagree with me on this. Like just like Eli Manning, he's not terrible. He can still win football games, 
but it's sort of just time for a change, right? I think every Giants fan, they don't hate Eli Manning. They just think it's time for a new voice. It's time for a change. It's time to get younger when a game is getting younger. And I think for the Ravens, they fall into that same category. It's Lamar Jackson time. I think it's a shame that so many teams passed up on him in the first round. I think the Ravens were smart to trade up and be like, hey, no one took Jackson. Why not get Flacco's replacement now? Why take a risk and have another team get him, if you know what I'm saying? So great job by the Ravens to trade for him. I love Lamar Jackson. I think he was one of the top QBs in last year's draft class that was severely underrated and overlooked for some reason. And Lamar Jackson said, you're going to get a Super Bowl out of me. And I think a lot of teams are going to regret not drafting Lamar Jackson. Again, is he the future of the Ravens? I hope so. I think this team needs to get younger. I think they need a change. I think Lamar Jackson brings a nice change. Um, Again, there's still a lot for him to learn at an NFL level, but I think he definitely will be able to do that. I think he's a very smart kid. I think he had a really good first game. The thing I disagree with you on, Nick, is that let's say if Joe Flacco is healthy in Week 12 or Week 13, it's Lamar Jackson time. It's over for Joe Flacco in Baltimore. And again, it's nothing against Flacco personally. It's just, you know, you got hurt. This is a good time to transition, to already start to transition. Don't get me wrong. The clipboard worked with Mahomes. And I'm not saying the clipboard doesn't work. But sometimes you need an attitude change. You need to show the team that the team is going in a different direction. And how do you do that? By putting a guy like Lamar Jackson back out there for Week 12. Hey, we won. Let's keep the momentum going. Start Lamar Jackson again. He has another hot game. You start him again. And, you know, you ride this hot wave until you can because you can hold the clipboard all you want, but you're really not going to learn until you get in there and you're game ready. Patrick Mahomes is phenomenal, but then again, Patrick Mahomes, like we said, is a different breed. So the only thing I disagree with you on, Nick, is that even if Flacco is healthy, I'm rolling Lamar Jackson out there because it's Lamar Jackson's time to shine. Yeah. Baltimore does not have a challenge, too challenging of a schedule the rest of the way, but you know, I don't think Flacco will be healthy for Week 12. Uh, but from then on, you know, Atlanta, Kansas City, Tampa Bay, uh, Chargers. Obviously, I'm naming some good teams here, but I'm naming some high-powered offenses. You, you're going to rely on Baltimore's defense. It's never really a top-five defense, but it's never a bad defense. To play against these high-powered offenses, it's going to require a lot of points from you know, Baltimore. And do you get more of a twat management control with Lamar Jackson right now? That kind of reminds me of a poor man's Dallas Cowboys system. Or do you go with the guy that, you know, is an actual starting quarterback, is a veteran in Joe Flacco. And if you're trying to make the playoffs, I think you go with the veteran. You still are playing for something. John Harbaugh has worked with... Joe Flacco for how many years? It just it seems like an easier uh, route to take if you stick with Flacco for the long term. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't think that the Ravens are making the playoffs. I think the season's over for Baltimore. I know mathematically, yes, they still have a chance. But like you just said, they're not beating Kansas City. I don't see them beating San Diego. So I don't think the schedule is on their side i rather have Lamar Jackson go out there and learn from game experience because that's just my opinion. I don't think the Ravens are making the playoffs. So really, you have nothing to lose whether you start Flacco or whether you start Jackson down the stretch. You might as well start building towards the future and throw Lamar Jackson out there. 
Well, right now, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Miami, Indianapolis, Tennessee, all five and five, Denver four and six. All of them have a chance at that sixth seed. The only one that's above them all is the Chargers at seven and three, currently for the five seed. So Baltimore's definitely got a chance for a playoff spot, uh, it, but it's going to require to get a lot of wins. Beating Cincinnati was the first start. Over a long term, it's going to be an interesting choice. I think you also, you know, ha- if the GM was staying more than one year, maybe this would be a different conversation that we'd be having. But there's still a lot of question marks when it comes to the future. All I'm saying, Nick, is that when the Browns run the table and they get that sixth seed, I don't want to hear it. I've been telling you for a year and a half now. <laughs> Speaking of replacing older quarterbacks, Alex Smith who is now with the Washington team, has had a gruesome leg injury, as I'm sure a lot of you have saw. So hopefully Alex Smith can get better. It really is a shame to see him go down in that way. Alex Smith is definitely a good quarterback. And, you know, he's a guy that never really complains when he knows that there's a youngster in waiting, right? Um, Didn't complain when Colin Kaepernick took over his job. Didn't complain when Patrick Mahomes was clearly going to take his job in Kansas City as well. So Alex Smith, you know, he's he's a pro's pro. <clears throat> with his leg injury, though, Nick, most likely he is done for the season. Washington is in first place in their division. And we'll get to the NFC East and about the division in general in a little bit. But just focusing on Washington, they officially signed Mark Sanchez. They don't have much behind Alex Smith. What is the best move going forward? Was signing Mark Sanchez better? Was the best decision? Were there better QBs out there in free agency still? What should be their plan? And if anything, is Washington season over? So they signed March Sanchez. Uh, the week of Thanksgiving, the Redskins play on Thanksgiving. You know, if there is such thing as like a karma sense of humor, we and the perfect but fumble two coming up. Yeah, it's a possibility of that. But Colt McCoy is going to be the starter. They gave practices to guys like Mark Sanchez, E.J. Emanuel. Uh, Nathan Peterman didn't get a chance, though, unfortunately. Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what he did to lose an opportunity, except not throw a pass to a single wide receiver. Uh, but, you know, it's getting to the point that this is annoying. This, this, is, this is depressing. And... This is, you know, I'm just going to call it. It's stupid. At the end of the day, Washington leads the division at 6-4. and four. They're a game up on Dallas. They're about to play Dallas. Dallas was a field goal and a penalty away from tying the game against Washington with all the momentum to beat Washington in overtime. And that would have been the difference right now of a tied series of a tied record going into Thanksgiving's game. And you sign Mart Sanchez, and you have Colt McCoy, and there's a guy named Colin Kaepernick, who's, I don't want to hear about anything else, as much as I support him. And I think he should have a job. There should be not a single person against him. When you compare the numbers of Colin Kaepernick to every single quarterback the Redskins either gave a chance at a practice 
and Tolt Matoy, your sits and four, you lead the division. This isn't Buffalo, where you can choose Nathan Peterman or Matt Bartley and not care. This this is a division-leading team. Sign a quarterback that's made it to the playoffs. Sign a quarterback that's been to the Super Bowl. Sign a quarterback that would be a starter if he wasn't taking a knee and standing for some uh, for his beliefs. It's an easy decision that Washington should be making here. They're not, and you know what? I hope they lose the division for this because they're not going to win a division with Colt McCoy. They're not going to win a division with Mark Sanchez. They were going to with Alex Smith. They could with Colin Kaepernick, but they are not going to with the quarterbacks they have. Well, although I agree with you with the Colin Kaepernick stance, I think it would also be really ironic if Colin Kaepernick was signed to Washington given their problems with their logo. Um, so I'm kind of happy Kaepernick didn't end up in this situation. Uh, should Kaepernick have a job? Yes, but we can go on another hour-long podcast if we want to debate about that. Um, but it's, kind of, it's, it's sort of like you said. I feel like there's still better options, too, than signing Mark Sanchez. Um, I'm all for giving guys chances. So if you want to give a chance to Colt McCoy, sure. sure. Honestly, it's just really bad timing and bad luck for Washington. I mean, it's like you said. You lose Alex Smith. And then you're playing on a short week because they play, you know, they play on Thursday for Thanksgiving. You know, you don't have much time to kind of rebound here. Obviously, I don't think I think that's the reason why Mark Sanchez won't start, right? Because he didn't get in. You know, he comes into the team now with four days to prepare for a game. Obviously, that's putting Mark Sanchez in a bad spot. Although I would love to see another butt fumble on Thanksgiving again. Um, it's the right choice to let Colt McCoy start over him. But Nick, the season's over. For Washington, I mean, this was a team that I didn't even think that was that good to begin with. The only reason they had a chance was because they had Alex Smith. They benefited from the division playing so poorly, but now there's no Alex Smith, and this team, in my opinion, is done. It's just the season's over. I mean, if the best you can do is signing Mark Sanchez, and if he's going to save your season, or Colt McCoy is going to save your season, no, that's not going to happen. So if you're a Washington fan, I'm sorry, but your playoff dreams are over, even though you guys weren't going to make it out of the first round anyways. It's over. Because Alex Smith was the reason why they were where they were, and now he's not there anymore. If, if I'm just going to jump in as well. If you're Washington fans, you are the only people that can get Colin Kaepernick. And whether you like him or not, he's your best opportunity. Because... Washington, you deserve to make the playoffs the way your team's been playing. And how good they've come out in wins. And they almost beat Houston last week. They really could have and should have been the Tetsons. They had played well the entire game. Tomatoy went 6 for 12, 54 yards, one touchdown. Uh, I don't know if you're going to get that consistency from him. It's hard to expect any consistency from him the way his career has gone. But if you're Washington fans, demand the signing. If the Met fans can get the Wilpons to sign Yoenna Cespedes, Washington Redskins fans can certainly get the team that's leading a division to sign the best quarterback available right now. It should be easy to do. It should be an easy decision. And if you don't, you're headed for downfall. Most of your games against division rivals 
And for every division rival, the Giants, even the Giants, the Eagles, when they've played terrible this season of late, and especially Dallas, should all view this as an open door to win the division the way Washington has set their QBs up for. And that's going to be a perfect segue into our next topic on the show, the terrible, terrible NFC East. Um, As you said, when one door closes, another one opens. And for these four teams, you know, not that you wish injury on somebody, but they're pretty ecstatic that Washington is in a bad state right now. The Giants are still alive, sort of, right, mathematically. They're still in it. Philadelphia is banged up. I still think they're going through a championship hangover. Washington loses Alex Smith. But guess who's playing good at the right time? It's the Dallas Cowboys and Dak Prescott. Two weeks ago, Cowboy fans were ready to run Prescott out of town. And now, including Skip Bayless, they're all praising him again after two great weeks by the Dallas Cowboys. Two nice bounce-back weeks by the Cowboys offense. So, Nick, with the door wide open, who finishes on top of the NFC East? Yeah, I do like Dallas right now. Uh, it helps that if you win this week, you're tied with Washington for the division lead. Plus, you know you'll have the advantage at three and one as far as a division record goes. So you'll have the tiebreaker for the moment. Uh, you know, Dallas does have a little bit of a tough schedule. They'll still have to play New Orleans. They'll have a big matchup against the Eagles and Indianapolis. Those are the next couple games after. Washington, but Zeke Elliott, Dak Prescott, these guys, when Dak Prescott is playing, uh, when Dallas has their starting quarterback starting the football game, they have like they have one of the highest winning percentages since I think like 2014 or 13, and it's close enough as a comparison to the Patriots when Tom Brady, their starting quarterback, starts. So uh, that's just the comparison of how good Dallas has been. And they still have Jason Garrett. Think of that as a topper to it all. So I really like Dallas's chances. You know, we're in New York, so I guess Giants fans think Eli Manning can lead them to the playoffs at 3-7 and seven because they beat the Buccaneers and they beat the 49ers. But... Uh, I mean, what else are they going to beat the rest of the season? They have three wins, and their only decent win was against Houston when Houston was still 0-2, I think, to start the year off. And now look at Houston. They've won every game in a row since, and if you're going to tell me the Giants would have any chance against the Houston Texans right now, no, it wouldn't happen. So the Giants are not a threat, and the Eagles are fading like crazy. I do think Wentz is still hurt, like you brought up a great point earlier about Carlson Wentz. There's a lot of injuries for that Eagles squad. They're already missing running back Jay Ajayi for the season. That doesn't help them out. It was easily supposed to take off some of the load for Carlson Wentz. You add guys like Golden Tate, but... I mean, you don't look at a team and say, hey, you just lost 48-7. to You're still in a great spot right now because there's a lot of question marks when it comes to the Eagles. Their only win lately has been against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Jaguars are 1-7 in their last eight games. So there's not much to believe in the Eagles. The only team I'm really buying into is Dallas right now. Yeah, I mean, like we said, 
Giants, mathematically they're in it, but you and I both know they're really not in it. So we can take the Giants out of the equation. To me, Philadelphia is just too banged up. They don't have a proper run game. If they would have made a trade for a running back, I would be more open to saying Philadelphia. But for some reason, I look at them, and it's just not the same team as last year. They're not playing with the same energy. So really, it's the most opportunistic team right now, which is the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, if you're the Cowboys, like you said, if you're Jason Garrett, right, you go from being on the hot seat to -to back-to-back wins to now finding out Washington loses Alex Smith to knowing you're playing them this Thursday on a short week, having their QB scrambling to take over starting for Smith. And I'm sure it won't be a hard transition for McCoy because obviously he practices with the team and he knows their offense. But still, it's a downgrade to go from Alex Smith to Colt McCoy. A huge downgrade. If you're the Dallas Cowboys, you're licking your chops right here. You have a chance to tie Washington for the top of the NFC East. And like you said, they have a very, very hard schedule. But right now, if the Cowboys win on Thursday, Thursday, that's three in a row. I like momentum, Nick. Momentum plays a huge factor in a lot of things. The Cowboys are going to be feeling really good about themselves if they go into Thursday's matchup and knock off Washington as they should. What I can't believe is that if the Cowboys get this done, is that Jason Garrett's going to save himself from being fired again. Oh, don't tell me that. He might. It, well, let me ask you. If the Cowboys finish at the top of the NFC East, does Jason Garrett not get a pass, ideally? It, you, don't does, think, you think Jerry Jones still fires him? Does Jerry Jones still love Jason Garrett? Of course. Then, yeah, there's my answer. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you're the Cowboys, and if you're Jason Garrett, you better make the playoffs now. There's no excuse not to. You're the team that has the hottest momentum right now besides the Giants, right? Go Giants. <laughs> you're getting Washington on a short week, which is basically the carcass of Washington showing up to the field on Thursday. You just have to put the finishing touches on it. There's no excuse why Dallas can't win the division going forward in the NFC East. Now, don't get me wrong. Whoever wins the NFC East is getting out in the first round. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Because whoever takes the sixth spot is probably going to beat the crap out of them. But if you're the Cowboys, if you're Dak Prescott, if you're Jason Garrett, a lot of criticism is going to go away if you win the NFC East and make the playoffs. So it's a perfect, a perfect way to get all that pressure off their back. And to wrap up with the NFL, before we move on to a little bit of MLB talk, the Thanksgiving games is always a tradition. There's three games on the card for Thursday, so if you're sitting around the kitchen table with nothing else to do while you're stuffing your face, you got the Chicago Bears against the Detroit Lions. As we said, Washington takes on the Dallas Cowboys, and the Atlanta Falcons take on the New Orleans Saints. Nick, quickly, why don't you give me who is going to take those three games? Well, when you're enjoying your Thanksgiving dinner, uh, I'm always a fan of also making some parlays, so I'm just going to give you three money lines. Uh, or even I really, you... I truly believe we should have a segment per show where it's just 15 minutes of Nick, Sor- Nick Sorasso's parlays, and you should just dress up in a gambling outfit and just basically just give all your picks. Well, I love the Bears for the spread, uh, only giving four points in Detroit. I know Detroit got the win last week against Carolina, but the Bears' defense destroyed the Lions in Chicago. I expect the same type of result. I love the Bears for the win. Dallas is an easy pitch. Uh, seven and a half is tough, but obviously money line on that one. 
just nothing to trust in Colt McCoy. Uh, but fumble two, that's all we're hoping for. And 13.5 point favorite. New Orleans has won the last nine games in a row. In no way am I taking the Falcons. I can hope they win that game, but I'm going easily with New Orleans. Yeah, I'm totally with you on Thursday. If the Bears took care of the Vikings, there's no reason why they should be losing to the Lions. I think out of the three games, that's the one that could possibly be an upset because can the Lions beat the Bears? Sure. Um, But I do think the Bears are going to be able to get it done. Um, Trubisky was questionable going into that one, but it looks like he should be able to start that game no problem. So I'm taking the Bears over the Lions as well. Um, Washington, they're done. Put a hook in them. They're done for the season. Dallas is going to win that game and eventually the division, in my opinion. And like you said, you know, Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, I, I don't like them visiting New Orleans. I'm sorry. If, you know, if it's the Saints at home, I'm going to roll with the Saints every single time. So I'm choosing the Saints over the Falcons as well. Moving on now to some MLB news. As we said, even though MLB is over, that didn't stop some noise coming out from the MLB hot stove yesterday as the Yankees make the first big move of the offseason. There has been some signings already, but unless Jeff Mathis to the Rangers gets you all excited, there's no reason really to report on that. So the Yankees make the first big trade of the offseason as they acquire James Paxton from the Seattle Mariners for three minor leaguers, including Justice Sheffield. Justice Sheffield, the main prospect in that deal. Nick, thoughts on the move, and will the Yankees regret letting go of Justice Sheffield? Will they let regret it? Absolutely not. The Yankees are in it to win it right now, and that's such a cliche line when I said it. <laughs> um, you practice that in front of the mirror all day? Oh, God. It, it just came out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, James Patson, not a lot of people know, because he's playing in Seattle. And it's a little bit of a pitcher's park. The toughest thing about James Patson is staying healthy. They have him for two more years under arbitration, and it's the Yankees, so salary cap really doesn't matter since they went under this season. But here's what you might not know. Luis Servino struck out 230 batters. He did so in, I think, 190 innings. Very great. Ah, phenomenal numbers. James Patston through 150 innings, 30 less than Cervino. He struck out 208. He, he, he struck out within relatively the same number or better because I think Seve got to 220, not even to 230. In fact, if you go to the year prior, Patston and Seve had the same ERA at 2.98. The difference is Seve again pitched more innings than Patston. The only question that this entire trade has is Patston's health. And when you consider the Yankees, their bullpen, obviously there's a couple downgrades with Zach Britton and David Robinson becoming free agents. But overall, the Yankees are known to pull their starters after five or six innings, not going too deep. I expect them to try and keep Patston to a minimum at the beginning to try and keep him on long-term, almost like what the Red Sox kind of did with Chris Sale. I really want to see the Yankees try and do the same effect to. No, Yankee fans should not regret this. He might be a better ace than Luis Saravino if he was able to throw 190 innings or 200. 
I don't think he'll get to that number next season. But if he's in the playoffs for you, I mean, Sevi, Patston, Tanaka, it is very hard to name a top three better than that. Uh, it's This is going to be a very good year for the Yankees, and that was a great opening move to say to the Red Sox especially, hey, you won the World Series, but we are not backing down from you at all. We're adding every piece to take over from you and get to the World Series ourselves to win it. Yeah, I mean, to me, after the Yankee season was over, I know everybody's yelling, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, we want Bryce, we want Machado. The Yankees have one need, in my opinion, as the same need all the time. More pitching. It's the one area where the Yankees always lack the pitching. Especially this year, left-handed pitching. And, you know, we didn't know that Paxton was going to be available right away, right? No one would have thought the Mariners were going to rebuild like this. There's now rumors that they're going to trade Segura and Mike Leake to San Diego. So it's clear that the Mariners are cleaning house. Prior to this, you know, we're talking about Corbin. Kygo is a good fit for the Yankees. Kershaw, if he opts out. But once the Mariners were rumored to have a fire sale, me and you both said, Paxton's the guy. Paxton's the guy that the Yankees need to get. I understand people are a little bit concerned with his injury history. I would too. But I think he's still a great pitcher. He still stays healthy enough to you know, make it worth making this trade. Um, I'm not worried about the pitcher's park at all. I think he's done fine in other ballparks too. His road numbers are not terrible from his home numbers. If his road numbers were like a drastic split – then I'd be like, nope, that guy's benefiting from the pitcher's park, but his numbers are pretty similar. I think he is a guy that's going to flourish here in New York. Maybe a little bit of a rough adjustment period in the beginning, but that's just because he's going to play a majority of his starts here at home now in New York in that ballpark. But I love this move. And I also love Justice Sheffield. I'm still very high on him. I think he'll do good in Seattle in a pitcher's park. But the Yankees have a great farm system. Don't think that the Yankees have a great farm system to use them. They're, you know, the Yankees make sure to have a good farm system for this reason, to trade them away. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? As long as you're getting something good in return, there's nothing wrong with you know, focusing on developing players to then ship them out later, right? I mean, right now, they don't care what happens to Sheffield, right? But before, you wanted Sheffield to be the best he can be, so you could trade him for a guy like Paxton. And yes, you gave away three players for one guy, but to get a guy like James Paxton, this is what you need to do. And like you said, this is a great statement to the Red Sox. Hey, you guys won the World Series. Congratulations. Next year, we're upping it. You guys brought back a series of players already. We're bringing in guys, too, to help us get better. I think it's a great move by the Yankees. And, you know, when it's all said and done, I know there's a lot of free agents still, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was the best move. When 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 the offseason is all said and done, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the best move that was made. At the end of the day, you're if you're a Yankee fan, you're hoping Justice Sheffield turns into something like a James Patston. But uh, you're you're not expecting him to be the next Clayton Kershaw. You're not expecting him to be a Chris Sale. You're hoping him to be a very good starting pitcher, close enough to an ace, if not an ace of your team. Uh, a top starter. Uh, how am I missing James Patston on that? You're hoping he's exactly what James Patston is, except instead of waiting for him to be that, 
You have him right now for two years on arbitration and on under salary control, and you can still go out there, especially since you're New York Yankees, and put a ton of money wherever else you want to put it. And as you mentioned before, having the rotation now, Severino, Paxton, Tanaka, like we don't know if that's going to be the order. But, you know, they signed CeCe for one more year, and CeCe did a really great job last year. So far, is this the best rotation in baseball? You know, it's very tough. I was trying to go through different teams to name a better starting pitching unit, and it's hard to get there. I think the Indians are the only one I considered uh, at that moment because they have Kluver, Bayer, and Carrasco, and they had four guys, uh, I think, with 200 strikeouts this season. So I think that was the first time in the history we saw that. Uh, so maybe the Indians are the only team that has starting pitching like that. But it is a it is a very tough one, two, three between the three guys. So I, I don't know how you get much better than that. And I believe Patston's a lefty as well. And that's what the Yankees really needed. So it's just a perfect fit all in general. In uh, the Yankees... Because they're the Yankees, we know they're not done. Yeah, I mean, a lot of reports are saying the Yankees are not done, as you said. But when they say they're not done, a lot of people like Ken Rosenthal are saying that the Yankees are still expected to add one more starter over adding Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. They prefer to add one more pitcher. I'm sure, you know, you mentioned before, Britton Robertson, they would love to bring back at least one more reliever to go along with Chapman and Patances. But from the starting rotation-wise, do you see the Yankees still in play for a guy like Corbin or a guy like Keigel? In terms of a starting pitcher, Nick, who would you want to see them go get as well? You know, they they have a lot of different options. Uh, certainly, I would love to see them get a, a left-handed starter. Uh, another one would be a key piece. I don't know if they are going to go the starting route. I think they're going to go bullpen before that. Uh, but there's certainly a, a ton of options for them, as well as trades. I, I, I think if the Yankees are considering this, you know, you can pay a lot of money for Dallas Keitel. You can pay a lot of money for Charlie Morton or Patrick Corbin. Or you can try and go out and make a trade. I, obviously... Zach Ranky would be the first guy I would consider, but he's not a new uh, he's not a New York guy. There's no likes, way you can get he, that. He likes the sunsets, Nick. Yeah, he likes Arizona. He's always been that type of person that he doesn't like big media. Uh, but you know, there are plenty of options. I'm not going to try and throw like a Madison Bumgarner out there, but there are so many different pitchers that you could see the Yankees go to, Yankees to make a trade for. Uh, as far as what I think they're going to get, if they're going free agency, I think Gio Gonzalez is the route they're looking at. If they're considering a starting pitcher uh, other than like they already brought back CC Sabathia. but So Gio Gonzalez would be a free agent, but I think if they're going any route, they're going through the trades. That would be an interesting name out there, Gio Gonzalez. You know, you'd probably get a deal similar to CC's just with maybe a couple more years on it. But if I'm the Yankees, go big. 
get Patrick Corbin. I mean, you saved money by getting a guy like Paxson, right? Because they, let's say if they would have signed Corbin and Keigel, that would be crazy, right? And it would cost you a crazy amount of money. You're bringing in Paxson's team-friendly contract. As you said, it's still arbitration eligible, or they still have him for two more years at least. And you can still go out there and spend seven years, 100 mil, on a guy like Corbin. I think it makes way too much sense for the Yankees. Spending money has never stopped them before, and they certainly have enough money to add another starting pitcher and a reliever. I say really stick it to them. Really make sure you have the best rotation in baseball and bring in another guy like Patrick Corbin. Moving on now to some NL East teams. We broke down last week what the Yankees and Mets need to do going into the offseason. But let's take a look at some of the other teams around the New York Mets, particularly with the NL East. So with each team, Nick, we're going to go. We're going to start with the Atlanta Braves. First of all, they won the NL East title for the first time since 2013. A very young team, a very young core led by Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies. Freddie Freeman had an MVP type year, although I believe he finished. I do believe he finished in the top five for the MVP voting as well. Nick Markakis had a very unexpected year for the Atlanta Braves. What's their area of weakness, and what can they do this offseason to make themselves better for 2019? Well, I think the first thing that they got to look at is outfield. You named it Ender and Tarsett, Ronald Acuna. That is a phenomenal two. But that's it. They only have two. Nick Martinez is a free agent, and they don't have any backups other than that. So when you look at this team, their starting pitching depth, it's phenomenal. They have starters five and then another five in the minors without an issue. I don't think they're a team that's looking to trade their starting pitching to add players as far as hitters go. I think they're a team that's looking to sign players instead. So what outfielder am I really looking at that the Braves can sign? There's a B in his name, but it's not Bryce. It's Michael Brantley from the Cleveland Indians. I think that's a great fit for the Atlanta Braves because he's the closest representative to a Nick Martakis and then some. Nick Martakis had a phenomenal season, probably the best season of his career. Don't bring back Nick Martakis. Bring a guy that when he was healthy a couple of years back, he was third in the uh, MVP voting or second in the MVP voting behind, I think, Mike Trout that year. You know, Michael Brantley had a phenomenal season uh, last season. We saw him fully healthy again. I, I really think that's the guy that you have to target. And I think he would be a perfect fit for Atlanta. The other position that they kind of have to figure out is third base. And this is a little bit uh, tougher. Uh, maybe go on Mike Mustachis uh, route, but they should definitely be looking to bring in a big-name hitter whether it be at third base or outfield, they definitely have to add pieces at outfield no matter what because they only have two. I agree with you on the spending money part. Um, now is the time to strike for Atlanta, right? The Phillies are still trying to find out what they're doing. The Nationals, you don't know what's going on with Bryce. If the Nationals do lose out on Harper, they do take a major step back. You know the Nationals would still be a good team. Um, you know, you still got the Nationals not – like themselves from a couple of years ago, right? The Mets are still trying to figure out who they are, and the Marlins are rebuilding. So if you're the Braves, you got to go for it. The division is yours right now. Get those division titles. Get back into the playoffs as soon as you can. I'm looking at two areas, and specifically, I do like the Michael Brantley one. They didn't even think about that. I think that's really smart. 
but also starting pitching for the Atlanta Braves. They got to the playoffs, and Fulton Nevitz had a great season, did not look good in the playoffs. I know Kevin Gosman was a reliable option, but they really had no go-to guy at the beginning of that rotation. Um, so if I'm the Braves, I'm looking at Patrick Corbin, although I think he ends up at the Yankees. So I'm looking at guys like Dallas Keigel. I think they really need that true ace on the mound that's going to anchor the rotation, the guy that every fifth day they know they have a chance to win and not going to have to worry about, and when they make the playoffs, can say, hey, go get me that win in game one or game five or game seven. I really do think they need a starting pitcher. The other area I would want the Braves to look at is probably the bullpen as well, too. There's a lot of good relief options this year. They could either go in the middle with someone like Andrew Miller or Adam Adovino, or if they want to go towards the back end, they can have a reunion with Craig Kimbrell, who's still available, too. Um, and I think, you know, Kimbrell, familiar with the Braves. Braves, familiar with Kimbrell. I'm pretty sure he would be open to reuniting there, especially since they did not end on bad terms. Um, it would cost you some money, but again, I think the Braves is just too smart. You have to strike right now, especially when a division looks like it's pretty open right now. It's a good opportunity for the Braves to get back in there and make the playoffs once again. Moving on out of the Philadelphia Phillies, they're a team that's pretty interesting too. They're a team that started off really hot. They faded towards the middle of the season and just ran out of gas too towards the end of the year too. They have a crazy amount of money to spend, Nick, and everybody is saying that they have a chance to sign not only Bryce but Machado too. And to take it one step further, the Phillies GM or their owner, I'm not sure which one, said that they do have a lot of money to spend and that they're even willing to spend a little stupidly. I don't like how that sounds. I think that's a recipe for a disaster. So if you're the Phillies, hoping they don't spend stupidly, I do think they need to get either Bryce or Machado. If I'm looking at one area, I'm looking at Bryce Harper. Can you imagine a 3-4 combo of Bryce Harper and Reese Hoskins? I think a guy like Bryce Harper brings a lot of attitude to your team of Philadelphia. And if you go back to the Philadelphia championship years of Rollins, Howard, Utley, why was that team so good? It's because they had an edge. It's because they played with confidence. It's because they were mean. They played nasty. You know, they when I was, you know, growing up as a Met fan, I mean, I figure you, you know, you know this too. As a kid, we hated the Phillies. Why? Because they were so good, because they were so cocky. They felt good about themselves. They knew they were better than the Mets. I think if Bryce comes to Philadelphia, you get that same edge and that same attitude back. And I think that's what the Phillies were severely lacking last year was an identity and some sort of attitude or chip on their shoulder. The Phillies, I think, should be viewed as the most interesting team this offseason. Because, Jose, you said it. They have a ton of money, and they should spend stupidly. And that is a serious as it gets. Starting pitching. And their entire pitching staff, only one guy has really a serious contract, and that's Jake Arrieta. Their entire offense, only one guy has a really kind of large contract, and that's Carlos Santana. That's it. The entire outfield, the highest paid outfielder, is Jubal Herrera, and he signed a contract a couple years back, and it's a really team-friendly contract, considering you're getting maybe a Starting for uh, outfielder in center field, not the greatest defensive outfielder. They have a lot of different options. They have a ton of outfielders: Nick Williams, Ryan Hoskins, who might move to first base, Roman Quinn, 
who went healthy, was extremely good at the end of the season. Defensively, speed, batting average, he could be their everyday leadoff man next season in center field. Abdul Herrera, who's playing center field most of the season, finished hold. Twin played great to finish off the year. Aaron Othar is like their fourth outfielder. Dylan Cousins was a was a power guy. The Bash brothers in the minor leagues for this team was Hoskins and Cousins. There's so many different outfielders. They're going to wind up trading one or two, I think, in the offseason. They need, I think, above anything else other than we're talking about these bidding signings, bullpen help. Sir Anthony Dominguez was brilliant last season with his fastball, overall pitching, but his arm got tired. He couldn't do the consistent every day uh, coming in for relief, and at times closing, I think they need to add somebody to shut down in that ninth inning to make it a little bit more interesting because we know this team loves to pick and choose their matchups, and I think Sir Anthony would be a perfect guy for those moments. He can go a little bit lengthier in the games than normal relief pitchers. I really like him to be more of a setup man or seventh inning guy, so I definitely think they have to add bullpen. But really, as far as the Phillies are concerned, they can add whatever they want, and it should benefit this team. They have two aces. They could add a third if they want. They have enough starting pitching, though. They need to add some bullpen help. They could add an outfielder, move Hoskins to first base, move Santana from first to third. You're really going to question a lot of the things defensively for this team. But overall, if they want to add Machado, sure, he fits in fine for this team. If they want to move, add a third baseman and trade Malik Franco, they can do that option as well. So I really think this team is going to make a lot of moves, a lot of moves that could be questionable if they don't pay off. But at the end of the day, we could see them add a big-name outfielder, trade guys like Malik Franco, and an, uh, an outfielder as well. Add some bullpen pieces and add guys like Manny Machado and Bryce Harper with ease. So this is a team that can do no runs except doing nothing. And speaking of which, there was also rumors that they were interested in trying to move Carlos Santana as well. So that would certainly open up a lot more doors if they are able to get that move done as well too. Moving on now to the Washington Nationals, who really fell off their throne, Nick. Um, they really took a major step back last year, a lot of injuries, and they just couldn't play consistent baseball, too. Um, but the Nationals, you know, a lot of people would argue that they're not too far away from contending again. Um, there's a lot of issues with knowing if Bryce Harper's going to come back or not. Uh, there was rumors that Bryce Harper turned down a $300 million 10-year contract from them. So if you're a Nationals, do you keep chasing after Bryce Harper, or is there somewhere else where the Nationals should turn their eye to? You know, the only thing that they're probably going to do, I think, is add a starting pitching. Their starting pitching depth really drops after Scherzer and Strasburg, as expected when you consider those names. But their next guy is Tanner Roark. So their starting pitching really is the big concern. Uh, for the Nationals, they're going to have to decide whether they're really contending anymore. 
because they refused to trade Bryce Harper last season. Turned out to be the wrong decision, most likely. Uh, they'll get a first-round pick. I don't know if they can re-sign him. Do they have to re-sign him? Not necessarily. They have Adam Eden. They have Vitton Robles. And they have Juan Soto. Now, Vitton Robles probably is not considered a Bryce Harper. But he is a top prospect that should get the respect he deserves of getting that position. And they have an open spot. Guys like Michael Taylor has played well as a fourth outfielder. So their outfield is really... If it doesn't have Bryce Harper, yeah, you're downgrading because that guy's an MVP. But it's not the end of the world with the outfielders that they have. They don't have a second baseman, so they really need to add that. But starting pitching has to be the number one concern other than Bryce Harper. I think you said something interesting, Nick. The Nationals need to decide if they want to keep contending. And to me, that's the main question because... Anthony Rendon is a free agent after 2019. And he's a very underrated third baseman. But there's no guarantee he's going to re-sign with the Nationals. You still have Adam Ian. Juan Soto had a great rookie year. There's no reason to expect... There's no reason to not think that he's going to keep having great years. You still have great starting pitching with Scherzer and Strasburg. And you still have those guys for the next couple of years. So there's still a window to compete if you're to watch the Nationals. And unless the Phillies or the Braves and the Mets go out on a spending spree and sign everybody in free agency, this division is not going to get fantastic overnight. Even with the Nationals having a bad year last year, and even if Bryce Harper doesn't come back, I still consider the Nationals a possible favorite to win the NL East. So how do you fix this? I say the Nationals go for one more shot. They sign Kurt Suzuki, which upgrades them at catcher. I think he's definitely an upgrade over Matt Wieters. You don't sign Bryce Harper because if he didn't take a three-year, if he didn't take a three hundred million dollar contract from you for ten years, I don't know how else you're going to convince him to come back. What you do is you add a dominant reliever to the back end of that bullpen to help set up Sean Doolittle, and you're going to like this one, Nick, because he's one of your favorites. You trade for Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt is a free agent at the end of 2019. You trade for Paul Goldschmidt. You put him at first base. Your lefty bat replaces Bryce Harper. That's a 30-home run guy in Washington Nationals Park. And if it doesn't work out, you trade Goldschmidt at the deadline or you let him walk at the end of 2019. The only problem is you would have to find a new home for Ryan Zimmerman. But let's be honest, Ryan Zimmerman's getting up there with age. Goldschmidt would take a priority over Ryan Zimmerman. He may get shipped in that trade. Yeah, or maybe, yeah, maybe you trade him over to Arizona who will use him as a stopgap for whatever prospect you can add. And you could even include someone like Victor Robles in that trade to help entice them to send Goldschmidt over. I mean, if you're including Victor Robles in that trade, I don't know how Arizona, if they're considering selling, doesn't take that trade almost immediately at that point. I don't know if they can go that high on that trade. Uh, I do value Victor Robles pretty high, but that, that would be an interesting way to go. It, 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 like, it. Do you want to contend? And if so, how are you going to do it? Otherwise, are you going to sell down your pieces? Because yeah. you are stuck with two starters, two dominant starters for a very long time. So I suggest contending, unless you want to be considered the New York Mets. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that's the. I think Goldschmidt is the one of the better options because, again, he's on basically a one-year deal, and if you see it's not going right. 
it, you know, it's easy to either let him walk or trade him at the deadline because there will be teams that will still want him come July 31st of 2019 who are going to be in contention. Moving on now to the team that's just as pathetic sometimes as the New York Mets, the Miami Marlins. They got a new logo, and they changed their uniforms, which I'm not going to lie. The uniforms actually look pretty nice. I think the blue alternate one is a little random and weird, but nonetheless, it's still nicer than that orange and bright sculpture in the park or whatever they were calling that crap. For the Marlins, obviously still ways away from competing. They do have some good young talent in the minors, though. They signed the Cuban brothers of Victor Victor Mesa and Victor Mesa Jr. That's a mouthful to say. Where did the Marlins go, Nick, in the offseason of 2018? Let's see. Are you... Is your team name Marlins? Are you located in Florida? Continue to trade. Is this a flowchart? I feel like it's a flowchart. It's simple as this. <laughs> Derek Dietrich, Stalin Castro, if they still have Martin Prado, which amazes me, uh, JT Realmuto. Three of those guys have to be traded. They, JT Realmuto should not be the starting catcher for the Mar- Miami Marlins when the season begins. And I know this is going to sound terrible, Marlins fans. You've seen enough players get traded, but he's the best catcher in baseball right now. Statistically, he should be traded because you can get more value trading away a catcher on a know-nothing team right now than ever before. So I would look if I'm the Marlins to trade whatever I can trade for whatever I can get. Because there's no point in keeping guys like Stalin Castro. There's no point in keeping guys like JT Romuto. And Derek Dietrich, I love. And it was great to see him moving again to another position. He he is, I think, a slightly worse defensive Ben Zobris. And when I say slightly worse, that's not an insult to Derek Dietrich at all. Ben Zobers is just a phenomenal defensive player in every position he goes to. But Dietrich can hit against righties phenomenally. Uh, sorry, against he, he's an opposite pitch um, hitter. This is a guy that performs extremely well. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Derek Dietrich. I think he fits on every single team he holds a value to. Because he can basically be your fill-in for any position you need. These are guys that the Marlins should be looking to trade away. You may not get the top prospects for Dietrich, but certainly for Castro. It is a very high class free agent at second baseman, but Castro does have great numbers. And Romuto is the best catcher in baseball. You'll get a lot of value for a guy like him. Look to make trades if you're the Marlins. Just continue to add the right pieces and hope that you can put up a decent team in years to come. Yeah, like you said, this is a no-brainer. You trade Rio Muto, you trade Castro, anybody who's not young on this team, who's considered a veteran, just keep trading them away. I know it's sad if you're a Marlins fan to keep watching this team get gutted, no pun intended, since they're the Marlins, but I do think Derek Jeter is trying to do this one last time. That way they don't have to do it again. Um, this organization was not built to compete even when they had Stanton and Yelich and Osuna. They weren't going to go anywhere in the time that those guys were there. So it's best just to completely start over with this team. You know, Put your touch on it if you're Derek Jeter and company and just do it the right way this time. So hopefully the Marlins are doing it for the last time. That way they don't have to do it over and over and over again. So 
basically trade anybody who's appealing, which, like you said, surprisingly, the Marlins still do have a lot of appealing players that could work on a one-year basis for a lot of different teams. And you'll be sad to know, Nick, or maybe you won't be sad, Derek Dietrich was designated for assignment today by the Miami Marlins. So, technically, he's off the hook here from being on a terrible team. Uh, that's amazing. On I value him so high. The fact that he's getting released is insulting. But uh, one name that does stand out to me, uh, the Rays designated for assignment C.J. Cron. He had a career-high 30 home runs. You know, the Rays, uh, the Marlins really don't have a first baseman. I think C.J. Cron would work as a nice pickup for the Marlins. Yeah, definitely would be a good stopgap guy, or really a DH for any American League team, too, um, who's looking for some power. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the Hall of Fame for a little bit. But first, we want to congratulate Adrian Beltre, who's calling it a career today after 21 Major League Baseball seasons. He finishes with 3,166 hits, 1,707 RBIs, 1,151 extra base hits, and 477 home runs. Adrian Beltre has played four teams, including the Dodgers, the Mariners, the Red Sox, and the Rangers. Nick, Adrian Beltre was fun to watch, not only on the field, but his antics were hilarious as well. I think we know he is a Hall of Famer, but I do have to ask, though. But is he a first ballot Hall of Famer to you? Easily. Uh, you know, the usually the requirements, 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, 300 wins. He's got the 3,000 hits. He's just under 500 home runs. His RBIs, I'd love to see where he ranks all time by that number. Uh, but this is an easy decision. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, you can't go wrong with a vote for Adrian Beltre. Uh, when you consider the numbers that he has compared to other players uh, as well, like a Vladimir Guerrero, he has more home runs than Vladimir Guerrero. He has or even Chipper Jones is another attempt. More home runs than Chipper Jones. More RBIs than Chipper Jones. Uh, you can even look at like even hits in some scenarios. So it's an easy choice. Yeah, this is not a debate. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I expect him to get a very high percentage, sort of like King Griffey did. Not kidding. I think he's that much of a lock. Um I'm very surprised he didn't play one more year. I think he probably could have gotten to 500 home runs if he would have played one more year. He was only 23 away. I don't think that's a crazy amount to think of him getting. I know he had a couple of down years his last couple of years with Texas, but nonetheless, it's a great career for Adrian Beltre. Um, so in 2023, he will be available. And if he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, I will be very upset. But again, speaking of Hall of Fame, a complete list of first-timers on the ballot was released the other day. And... Obviously, Nick, Jason Bay is clearly a lock to make the Hall of Fame. But what other first-timers are going to be on the list? Mariano Rivera is going to be on the list. Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, and Roy Halladay, all eligible for the first time. So out of those four to you, Nick, are any of those first ballot Hall of Famers, or are they Hall of Famers at all? Yeah, Mariano Rivera I certainly look at. Uh, one of the best relievers, if not the best reliever in all of baseball. Todd Helton certainly is an interesting candidate at uh, 2,500 hits, uh, 316 career batting average. I don't know if his numbers are good enough to you know, get into the Hall of Fame. He's certainly not a first ballot, 
but I'm hoping he gets at least the 5% to stay on the ballot. He should be able to cover that when you compare him to a guy like Scott Rowland's numbers. He's got better numbers than Scott Rowland, so you would expect him to get higher than the 10% for Scott Rowland. But certainly for Helton, it's going to be a tough fight. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of interesting guys. It's going to make this very tough for guys like Sammy Sosa, Andrew Jones, Scott Rowland, uh, Billy Wagner and Gary Sheffield, all those guys that were on last year's ballot that were in that 10% or lower range, I think they're all going to kicked out after this year. Uh, but there are some big names when we're looking at Roy Oswalt, Andy Pettit, Lance Berkman. Roy Holiday is one of the more interesting candidates. I really think he could get in as a first ballot Hall of Famer as well. So Marion Rivera, Roy Holiday are my two guys that I'm looking at as first ballots this season. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to the point where a lot of guys are coming in on this list, a lot of great names, where the ballot's just getting too crowded, right? And a lot of these guys, like Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, who, you know, they're only on the ballot for their second, third year, they're going to get kicked out so early, they're not even going to last the 10 years because there's so many names now that are coming onto the list. Um, to me, Mariano is definitely a first ballot. Um, if he's not unanimous, I think I would also flip stuff and be kind of crazy. However, you know, closers don't get a lot of love. I mean, how many times did it take Trevor Hoffman to get in, get into the Hall of Fame? I know Mariano is better than Hoffman. But if Hoffman struggled, you know, I have some worries about how long it's going to take for Mariano to get in, too, especially with how people view relievers and closers um, with the baseball writers. Mariano should be a unanimous decision. If not, he should be tied with Griffey or something on how many votes he gets. It really shouldn't be up for a debate. Andy Pettit is an interesting name. I think, you know, how will the steroid allegations um, go against him? It's certainly Clemens and Bonds, even though they've been trending upward, they've been very trending upward very slowly. Um, so it'll just be interesting to see how, how Pettit does on his first time. I don't think he'll get in first ballot, um, but it will be interesting to see where he comes in on his first try. Todd Helton, again, like you said, interesting name. However, Larry Walker also has really good numbers too, almost similar to Todd Helton. And he's not, fa- you know, he's not doing very well on these ballots. So I don't know if the baseball writers of America are also holding that Coors Field argument against them. But to me, Todd Helton is a different class of course field hitter. 2,500 hits, been around for a long time on the same team. I think Todd Helton gets into, maybe not on the first try, but I think he is a Hall of Famer. And to me, Roy Halladay, I don't think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I do think he gets in eventually too. And uh, last but not least, one guy I want to get to, it's his last year on the ballot. We saw Jack Morris make a strong push on his last year and get into a Hall of Fame. Edgar Martinez, a guy who doesn't get a lot of love because technically, yes, he was a DH. It's his last year on the ballot. He came in at 70.4, I think, last year. Nick, is this the year Edgar gets in on his final try? Yeah, usually on their last year, you get a nice push. Edgar Martinez most likely will get in. Uh, It's 70%. You don't have to get much further than that. You're just a couple votes shy. Usually that extra votes happen in that final year. He should be able to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, however, a guy like Fred McGriff is going to be struggling. I don't know if that's his last year as well because he's on it for his 10th se- uh, year. As well. But no, this is going to be very interesting. Um, it's certainly going to be more of a concern between how everybody did in previous from that 34% of Larry Walker 
to Andrew Jones, who was down to 7.3. I think a lot of those guys fall very far down um, because of, you know, it's not a stacked class, but it's a class that deserves votes from a lot of different people. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, but I'm actually a little bit worried about Edgar. I mean, he comes in at 70%. He's so close, but there's so many names that are being added to the ballot this year. There are a lot of good names. And years after that, well, I mean, we're only focusing on this year. There's so many good names that I think Edgar will get in because a lot of people will say to themselves, okay, it's his last year on the ballot. Let's put him in, and he will get a strong push. But I'm also very worried that a lot of these names are going to take precedent over him, and I still think people use a DH excuse against him, which to me is really silly, and he should have gotten in a couple years ago. Um, But I do hope this is the year that Edgar Martinez finally gets in. So with every podcast as well, we always do a beard back and dude and dunce of the week. So Nick, why don't you take us away with our beard back and our dude of the week? All right. So we got a few going back in time. Uh, We'll start in 1962. Mitty Mantle wins his AL MVP for the third time. Uh, In 67, Tom Seaver was named the NL Rookie of the Year. Uh, In 69, Brazilian soccer icon Pele scored his 1,000th goal. And, you know, there were so many good other ones to choose from. But ultimately, I gave it down to one last one, which was Walter Payton for the Bears rushes for an NFL record 275 yards in 1977. And those are our beard back for the day. And our dude of the week, well... It had to be a pretty easy choice for me. It was Patrick Mahomes. And you know, six touchdowns in the game. Yeah, he did not win the football game. But at the end of the day, six touchdowns, three interceptions, 478 yards passing, and 33 of 40 sits for the game. He was phenomenal. And the team still put up 51 points. Uh, So Patrick Mahomes is our dude of the week. He has been impressive all season long. 3,600 passing yards, just slightly over that, and 37 touchdowns passing for the season. Yeah, definitely don't disagree with that. And he is 81 yards up on Jared Goff for the most passing yards, I believe, um, so far through week 11 by any quarterback. So fantastic year by Patrick Mahomes and a fantastic game, even though he lost. Our dunce of the week, Nick, goes to our good old friend Henry Mejia. No, he didn't do anything again, but he was officially released today by the New York Mets. And it's always a good laugh to go and revisit the stupidness that happened with Henry Mejia getting suspended not once, not twice, but three times for drug-related suspensions. So hopefully the Mets are releasing him for good and not because they want to sign him to a minor league deal. But knowing the Mets, we might see Henry Mejia back in a Mets uniform in spring training. But let's just hope it's not. Anyways, any final thoughts, Nick, before we sign off for tonight? Uh, I do have a final thought. Uh, This week, we're seeing what's going to be interesting. Tiger Woods versus Phil Mitchelson for, I believe it's a $9 million match between the two. Uh, This is really unheard of when you consider golf. uh, Obviously, it's a solo game, and it's never really a 1v1, but more of an entire competition. you know, I love the idea, I, and I, I'm not saying this to be joking. It, it is phenomenal to see two people that are the 
probably the biggest icons for their professional sport over the last, what, 20 years. These are the two biggest names for golf. And we always talked about in basketball, 1v1. Uh, we see it so many times in tennis, uh, Nadal versus Federer. We saw Pacquiao versus Mayweather. So I love this idea, but this is going to be an easy game for Tiger Woods. He is back fully the way he has been lately. Uh, this should be an easy $10 million uh, win for Tiger Woods over Phil Mickelson. But certainly... All this is the one time where I say all eyes should be on golf when this matchup happens, uh, because of the fact that this is just so unheard of. That's certainly a weird thing to say, huh? Oh, I should be on golf for the weekend. They um, won't be closing. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like you know me. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of golf, but I'd be lying if I say I didn't care about this. I think the one-on-one thing really adds intrigue to it. You know what I mean? Like the fact that knowing it's two of the best in golf going one-on-one, that's intriguing to me. The fact that golf, it's usually a game where there's a bunch of people, is now just narrowed down to two people. Actually, that's a very, very interesting concept. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more people um, tune in than they originally anticipate because of it. It has, besides the fact that, you know, it's the two-bit names, it has a poker feel-esque to it. Because um, I'm just reading some of it. Let the side bets. Um, they they made a $200,000 side bet on the match's first hole. It, it, it has almost that poker feel for me because it's like you're making a bet and then you even have like a side bet on just something random going on. So for just on so many dis- different aspects uh, it's going to be interesting to see um, so also like the just the reaction of the two people because of how much obviously they respect each other how much they're friends uh, but how unheard of this type of matchup is and this I think is great for Dolph at the end of the day Tiger is back he's great for Dolph this kind of game in general is amazing for Dolph. So basically you're saying what's the over-under on how much money you lose this weekend due to holiday break? Hopefully not too much. Hopefully not too much. And with that, we leave you for tonight. Thank you so much for listening, wherever you may be listening from. Once again, make sure you check out the rest of our podcast episodes if you haven't. Our next podcast episode should be coming out after the holiday break and make sure you also check out everything else on the snd podcast channel as well too so thank you so much for listening once again you're listening to sarasso and the beard episode 32 i'm the talking beard jose rivera and i'm nick sarasso thank you so much for listening once again and we will see you next time using an overpriced trash bag pricey 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 a bag that breaks wimpy 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 or a smelly bag stinky 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 you got to snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag, always at an ultra-low price. Hefty, Hefty, Hefty! It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, Happy, Happy! Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, Hefty, Hefty! hefty.